0: all right perfect so uh welcome to episode 10 of single stock spaces we're going to be talking about volaris today uh mexican ultra low cost carrier airline and, and we have crosscheck with us today uh who probably knows this stock and this story uh better than anybody and you know we've exchanged a lot of messages and he really he really has a deep understanding not only of the stock but the airline industry so I think the way I'd like to, to start out is really just at a high level Crosscheck. If you could just, I think it'd be helpful if you give a little bit of background uh, on how you, really how you how you found the idea, uh, you know, what attracted you to it, that sort of thing. And we'll kind of jump in, we'll jump in from there.
1: Yeah, sure. So just as a, as a quick background, I work at a multi-billion dollar long short fund, some long cyber concentrated long-term focus on companies, great management teams and misunderstood businesses or turnarounds, kind of a value tilt. And I'm a generalist, but I spend a lot of time in airlines. And previous to this, I was covering airlines in a market neutral role. So uh, it's something that you know I've covered for a while. And also, uh, I just think the space is fascinating, exciting, and, and unnecessarily dramatic, but but fun. Um, so obviously, you know, uh, when COVID hit, it was pretty important for airlines. <laughs> and um, you know, I, I had a few on my radar. I wasn't really actively doing anything on them, but you know, I always I I, I think that uh, Bill Frank Airlines, like in, like a Wizz, um, and and Valaris, and and maybe more in the past Frontier and Spirit uh, are just great businesses. And I think you know there's a couple more Azul, Air Canada. There's a few. You know, I think airlines are bad businesses in general. It's tough business, and they tend to run them badly, but uh, there are exceptions. And so when I saw, you know, how much valaris and well, first I looked at Wiz and Valaris, and, you know, whiz had come off like 85% or something. And then Bill Frank put like 3 million of his own dollars in it. So, so I started digging into that one and I realized, you know, they have the cash to make it 18 months. And, uh, my estimate at the time of how long COVID would last was, was not that long. Um, but you know, and if they get through it, you know, Based on their business model, they're going to have a, a giant share of the pie, big margin expansion. And it's going to be really exciting, and so I, I bought that. But then I looked at Volaris and I realized it was it was several times better because not only does it have all the same characteristics uh, of, of the way they run the business models you can get into, but also they're in a not only a faster growing market, but one that had gone from four to three players. Whereas Europe is is very um, very fragmented and very aggressive. And uh,
0: hey, I think a lot of folks will be familiar with Spirit and Frontier, but definitely not Wiz. It might be worth 30 seconds just on what their market looks like.
1: Yeah, so they uh, maybe maybe just really high level. Um, should I just do like a quick of the legacy LCC and ULCC, or, or is that is that? T- t- that would be really helpful. Absolutely. Cool. Sure. So uh, you know, initially we just had legacy airlines, and that kind of grew out of mail, right? Where you have trunk routes where they carry the mail and trunk routes, and then they land at hubs. And go to spokes, right? And and then, you know, you kinda had Herb Keller at Southwest, kind of the father of, of the low cost carrier. And what they did differently was they went point to point. So rather than pooling all the passengers in one hub so they could create connections with a bunch of different plane types, which means you know, a bunch of different pilot certifications and maintenance teams and it's very complex. They just did all seven thirty sevens, very simple, point to point. Charge less, and so for leisure people, you know, you're not really selling the seat on the airplane; you're selling the destination. Like that person wants to go to Miami, and if they live in New Orleans now, they're like, you know, the leisure passenger will usually pay the cheapest. And so you know, that that you know, Southwest has obviously gained a massive share of the market, and it's been really bad for the legacies, and and particularly when they got a big fuel hedge advantage, which was you know effective long term cost advantage, um, and then you know. Uh, uh, Michael Leary at Ryanair uh, met herb and brought that model to europe and and kind of unbundled the ticket so basically you have this base fare and if you want to carry a bag on, you got to pay if you want to get i think it, I think they never charge for water i don 't remember, but they charge for everything they charge you to check in at the airport, et cetera, which is you know some people make fun of it, but you know it's unbundling right um and it brings it to to a larger audience of people so one they can undercut and they can um you know they can skim passengers from from routes that are suitable for point to point, and two, um, you know they would argue it, it stimulates traffic, right? Because some people, you know, people can now afford to fly. Basically, since deregulation, airline tickets have gone in a straight downward line in price, um, and I expect they'll continue to do so, and that's a function of aircraft technology, et cetera. But so then, Bill Frank runs uh, Indigo Partners, and um, he's kind of tweaked that model a bit and brought it to you know, a bunch of emerging markets with great success. And what he does is he does Airbus, it's not Bellings like, like uh, Ryanair and Southwest, but it's it's a single fleet type or it's A320s and A321s and you know, high density, so more butts in the plane. And so lower price per butt. And, um, and they're all, they're fully leased. And so I think that's actually a pretty important piece of this because I once heard, you know, this model kind of described as, you know, uh, 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 asset light passenger forwarder, which is maybe a little generous, but you know, it, it, they, all their planes are leased. They have a lot of flexibility. And when they take and return those leases, um, and maybe most importantly, Bill Frank made the largest Airbus order ever. I think it was 255 and that was uh split between, um, it was split between Wiz, uh, Volaris. And I'm actually blanking out on the jet smart and, um, and, and Frontier, I think. I need to double check. But the but Split Chain Forbes Airlines, so if one part of the world is lacking demand, to some degree they're fungible, right? Those planes can shift. It's at the company's discretion. But um so and then two, you know, being the largest customer, you know, you can you can get, you leverage that on maintenance deals and on, on all kinds of things. So it's a um so you they kind of have the scale and negotiating scale of the biggest airline ever. And they just made another Airbus is, is Uh, Backed up to to 2028, just a uh, couple weeks ago, they made another order for through 2030. So uh, the plan is to grow and models. But you know what can a legacy airline do that the low cost can't is let's say you want to go from uh, Galveston to uh, uh, I don't know Harlingen, right? Like there's probably only you know I don't know, but maybe. 25 people a day who want to do that. Right. So you can't do point to point with a big heavy plane or the big dense plane. So, but you can do connections. And so they offer a, a, a deeper schedule and they can serve thin routes, but on thick routes, you know, they can serve a business passenger, but for the seat in the back of the plane, um, it's pretty tough to compete. And so I kind of think of it as, you know, airlines are a tough business. We can go into that. Why, but it you know, kind of makes, kind of makes sense. Very low visibility on your two main costs and your demand and your capital is laid out on a very long time horizon. And ultimately, it's just a prisoner dilemma because it's in everyone's best interest to grow rationally, but it's in a low-cost guys to grow quicker, and it just collapses every time, depending on the market, especially in the U.S., where they don't allow attrition or, or much consolidation. So, um, yeah, so what we'll, would we'll be helpful next, uh, Twibs?
0: I think I think within that framework, let's talk about the structure of the of the Mexican airline market and how it's changed in the last couple of
1: years. Yes. So Valaris launched in two thousand five. So they just uh, they just graduated their fifteenth birthday, and at the time there was three I think three low cost carrier launches, and there were two legacies, Mexicana and Aeromexico. And hold on, I'm pulling up my little market share things. I can make sure I'm being accurate about this. Uh, uh, so. Fulair's has gone from since since uh, they launched actually flying in 6 they've gone from you know zero percent of the domestic passenger market to uh, to pre-COVID, uh, going into COVID, let uh, say December 20, uh, December '19, they were thirty-one percent, and then Interjet and Viva were the two other low-cost carriers. They were twenty and twenty each, and they all started in 06. Um, Mexicana is long gone, and the only other the fourth player is Aeromexico who was at 23. Um, so that was going into the pandemic and the way they got from zero to, you know, 60% of the markets between the three of them was just an absolutely cutthroat 15 year of aggressive growth in pricing. And and then over the last few years, you know, from you know, into 19, you had Interjet, which was sort of offering a product that was a little higher tier than a low cost, than ultra low cost carrier, but they were offering it at a low cost carrier price or ultra low cost carrier price. So they're basically kind of dumping decent you know, decent or, or quality capacity in the market at, at irrational loss making prices. And uh, they made some missteps with some Russian jets they bought. And even before the pandemic, uh, they started to get those planes repossessed. And I think everyone, I think most of the leadership there is in jail now for tax fraud, but, um, but so that was going in. You know, they, they, they had this massive growth of the low cost carriers, massive share gains thin margins and and just and then you had this irrational competitor who also uh, you know overlapped more with Volaris than with the peers um, and and just charged prices that were below cost and it was it was a tough situation. And that's kind of the situation that Volaris IPO'd into. So I think they IPO'd in 14 I need to double check that. But you know you look back at the history pre-COVID and it's kind of choppy. But then if you look at the second half of 19 a lot of people were just benchmarking the 19 for everything because that 19 is the automatic baseline. Well, Energetic you know, lost most of their jets by the half 19. And you had, I think a 10 point step up in EBITDA margin or a 10 point step up in yields just in that back half. So that was pre-COVID. Um, so during COVID, uh, EnerJet is gone. All the planes are gone. Um, I mean, there's just a, there's an entity with a lot of debt. And then there's some guys who say they're gonna bring it back, but I think it's, I think everyone's, I, I don't think it's realistic. Um, and then you had uh, Aeromexico going to bankruptcy and trend their growth a lot, and they just they just uh, I think approved the plan yesterday. But they've kind of reoriented to exactly what you'd want to see if you were a Volaris shareholder. You know, they're not. You don't want to see Aeromexico say we're going to convert to a low cost carrier and you know be competitive at the lowest price. Say so, you know we're going to go to Mexico City, we're going to serve connections, international business travelers, and our Delta code share, and and that's good because, you know, you don't have another rational player. So now you have three and Volaris. Um, so they basically split that. Uh, so Volaris and Viva are the two low cost carriers left. Viva is about half the size, a similar model, um, but they don't, we'll talk about the fleet later, but a little bit higher cost. Um, but, and they serve more beach markets and like, and in destinations, whereas Volaris serves, well, so there's 70%. Domestic and thirty um, uh, percent internet transborder U.S. Although they've started to launch some Central America stuff, which we'll talk about, and then their customer segment, uh, which is forty-five percent VFR, and that's very important—visiting family and relatives. So that's that's a very robust and um, and and resilient passenger segment, right? People going to visit their family, you know, whether it's within Mexico or across the border. Um, and then, you know, price-sensitive leisure travelers and then just, you know, leisure and, and tourism. So, and, and I guess very price-sensitive business. So, yeah, that's just, hopefully that kind of gives you the lay of the land market. So right now, so by... So the domestic market had recovered. Um, exiting... So Volaris, Volaris got, went from 30... And it's basically since May of 20 been at about um, 40% market share, a little higher, a little lower. Um,
0: and one of the, so, so in addition to market share, uh, could you walk everybody through uh, the importance of having monopoly routes and how Valeris looks on that, on that front? Yeah, so... Um, uh, so
1: I think the most important thing to think about is a lot of people look at airlines and, and kind of look at just a consolidated and kind of think of it like a commodity. But while, while each route is a commodity, um, the, the not all capacity is created equal. So there's a concept called competitive capacity, and that's where you look at um, what percentage of routes uh, two carriers overlap. So I have a table. Just give me one second to pull this up. Okay, so um, going, exit, going into the pandemic, 1Q – uh, 4Q19, uh, they were, you know, routes where they had 100% market share um, wha- were. So they had uh, 10% of routes where they were 90 or above. Basically, 60% of their routes on an ASM basis, they were. Uh, they were they were more than half the route, and twenty five percent of that they were they were uh, it was just them. And I do it on an ASM basis, so they sound a little different. We can, we can circle back to that if I find the way they, they, they do it. And that's gone. So if I look at the part that's gone ninety or above market share, that's gone from ten percent of their network to thirty one percent of their network. Um, if I look at seventy five or above, that's gone from fifteen percent to forty percent. If I look at more than half of the route, that's sixty percent. Versus 30%. So basically, not only have they gained 10 points of share, the portions of their network where they're the only carrier has gone from, uh, you know, has basically doubled. And the portion where they're the dominant carrier has gone from 30 to 60. Um, and most of the ones they're not, that's that's the trans border stuff. And that's, you know, in Mexico City where, uh, you know, it's, it's helpful for the network. And they're still by far, I mean, when they compete against the US carrier, it's, it's not really competitive in price. Same with Air Mexico. So there's an interesting study. That uh, that they did when they brought Valaris into Mexico City, there's like they had no slots the first time, and it was, they looked at what happened to fares in Mexico City on a, on a given route when it went from a two to three player market, and there was a 20% fare decline, and you've seen the same thing. They call it the Southwest effect, when Southwest enters a market, your fares go down 20%. So when you think about Interjet coming out of a market, um, I don't think you need to think about the entire opposite of that, but that's the concept you're thinking of is. And the reason that is is because, you know, again, airlines are a prisoner dilemma, right? So it is very unpredictable. If fuel's too high or demand falls off on a given route, um, if you you know you can't, if you're the only carrier, you can you know manage you can manage supply to demand, or or take price. But if there's someone on that route, especially someone with a cheaper cost structure, they can you know they will add capacity if you don't, right? So that's kind of what we have in the U.S. It's like it would be in everybody's best interest to not grow, but everybody's on top of each other, and so whenever Spirit puts a route into a American hub, you have to put two routes back that day, etc. So, this really important piece um, is that basically each of the remaining carriers in Mexico has their has their niche, right? They all have they, like they all have a piece of Mexico City. So Mexico City is slot constrained, so there's actually a limit on you know, how many takeoffs and departures can happen. And so this freed up, so Enerjet so was actually had a big presence there. So Enerjet being gone, freed up a space in Mexico City for Viva and Velars to enter. And it's a little different than the rest of their network, but you know, it's a really high dollar, you know, it can go anywhere in the US or Central America. And so that's a really big opportunity, but it's a little more competitive. But then you basically have Velars serving these point-to-point VFR markets, and that's their focus. Uh, Aeromexico, you know, connecting with Delta, serving far international, doing connections, doing business. And then you have Viva, uh, which does, you know, more beach destinations and more kind of transborder like um, Yeah, they do more beach destinations and then they're just ge- in geographically different airports. So, and I think what's really important is, you know, all these carriers say, you know, all these carriers have expressed a rational approach to growth. And, is, well, they're growing a lot, but they're being, but it's not, it's not competitive. There's not deliberately um, aggressively competitive growth. I mean, uh, the, so the CEO of Viva, which is private, well, was that a, 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 an industry conference, a couple you know, maybe six weeks ago. And he was talking about, you know, he said, you know, we think this market can double, there's more than enough room for us to, you know, grow what we put in, you know, what we order planes. And it's fairly modest and we don't need to step on Velar's toes to do that. And Vilaris, he's kind of expressed the same thing. There's so much growth, which we'll get to why, in the Mexican market that, you know, people from other markets look at the year-over-year growth numbers and kind of gag, but they don't really realize that it's, it's just a different situation, both from the, the duration of the underpenetration uh, and then bus switching, and, and then also, you know, you just lost 30% of the planes, and so you, you have this one step up. But ultimately, you're, you're still below trend and it's been a very long, fast, steady trend, and they're well below other markets I can get into. So they've gone from uh, the trips per capita. Okay, so so it's, yeah, it's a stable, it's a quickly growing market, um, and you know, it's it's a, it's a it's a growing economy. I think it's probably got some tailwinds from from reshoring and from supply chain, uh, you know, rehubbing, but. Um, and it's got, it's got solid demographics. It's got a growing middle class, and it's got a lot of people in the youngish age range that want to travel. So in 2005, Mexico was 0.2 air trips per capita. By 2019, it had grown to 0.5 air trips per capita. So it had more than doubled the market, and Valar has captured half of that growth from launching in 2005. So they basically drove that change. Now Brazil is 0.6. Colombia is 0.7. Chile is 1.1. Turkey is 1.3, and the USA is 2.8. So just to get to Chile, uh, you have another, you know, another 100% to grow in the market. And even if that's a, even if you know, even if you think that's at a lower rate, you know, post COVID, that still, in my view, supports you know more than the capacity plans that
0: that are laid out. So, so it's that under. I think I want to take a quick aside while you're on that point, just to to really understand this bus to air switching. Uh, if you can kind of explain it really at the lowest kind of unit economic level, because it's just it's a it's a topic that, that is hard to grasp, I think, for Americans. So let's just spend, you know, 30 seconds on that.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, the bus market is 60 times the size of the air market. It's the inner city bus market. So This is what would be competitive with a flight. And there's a lot of people who just haven't flown and they take the bus. And we're reaching, you know, we reached in the last couple of years, especially with these new aircraft, on an increasing number of routes. Um, this, you know, the equilibrium where suddenly it's actually cheaper to fly on a plane than it is to, to ride a bus, and you know, you save. Uh, I have a little comparison slide. Let me just pull this up, so because it's it's baffling. So, looking at like six, like uh, Guadalajara to Tijuana, Mexico City to Tijuana, uh, the Valar's fair. The Wars trip is three three to four hours versus twenty eight, twenty six, twenty nine, thirty for a for a bus trip, and it costs you know a thousand versus eighteen hundred or eight forty versus twenty seven hundred, and this is just uh, so yeah it costs less than half and it takes less than a fifth of the time or less than you know some of the tenth of the time, and so you and then the size of it is. Uh, Yes, there's 96 million annual, uh, uh, air traveler passengers. And there's, uh, there's three point. Yeah. Yeah. Three point, three billion intercity bus trips, uh, per year. So obviously they're not going to get all of that, but basically you just need to keep penetrating a little part of that. And so with, they have an interesting strategy. What they do is, so the, uh, even the bus trips are growing two to three percent a year, and over the last decade or fifteen years, the air market's grown you know nine percent a year with a small hiccup you know for the recession, but you know so so it's growing from this penetration that is mainly driven by by bus switching and, and by and by you know people moving up into the middle class while the flights get cheaper, but now so Volaris is aggressively sending people you know, salespeople to bus stops. And they give away tickets for free for first-time flyers for short flights. And that makes up about they do that about two million people per year they acquire, two million flyers per year they acquire by helping them fly for the first time. And 84% of the surveys they've done say so they would rather travel by air than bus next time. So they have you know eighty four percent attach rate, cost them almost nothing, and it's you know, it's it's just a gigantic market. And I wanna cause they they have a stat on the number of their routes that are only compete with buses and it's really it's really wild so i want to find that real quick one second 41% of their routes the only competition is intercity buses, that take ten times as long and are almost double the price. And that's remarkable. Yeah, it's remarkable. It's crazy. And so, yeah, you're not, you're not, you know, they don't have to go raid each other's hubs because they can just, you know, convert these bus passengers and they have an air flyer for life. The you know, tax rate is high. And what I think what's kind of interesting is, um, you know, logically makes sense and management's expressed this, is that. people who might have been a little scared to fly before COVID all of a sudden being on a bus with people for 29 hours is a little less scary than flying on a plane. And that kind of gets, you know, that's kind of contagious in itself. Not, not no pun intended, but, but, you know, suddenly that, that if if it was a fear thing, you know, it, it, it really pushes people to, to try it. And so I think there's definitely a scenario where you have accelerated adoption, but I don't underwrite that. I underwrite, the market grows slower post COVID because I don't know, I think it's just conservative and I don't, I don't need to underwrite anything higher than that. But, um, but it's really, it's, it's really remarkable. Uh, I mean, it, it took a long time for the air market to liberalize and it's just that convergence of cost, right? The planes have gotten so much cheaper, particularly with this, the Neo, the new engine technology or the new engine option, but, but you know, the fuel keeps getting better, more seats on the plane, and you're just at that point, I mean, I think Volars are the second lowest unit cost in the world. Uh, they're RASM, that's revenue per available seat mile. Available seat mile is the, the, unit that, you know, the most standard unit of, of supply. And then a revenue passenger mile would be um, you know, someone sitting in that seat going on the trip. And the difference would be the empty seats. So RPMs over ASMs is load factor. That's, you know, so they maximize load, factor. they fill the plane as much as they can and discount price as much as they can, and they get that back, by with the operating leverage of, of you know, of the point-to-point network, high utilization, uh, a bunch of seats in the plane. Because a lot of the, and we can get it. I want to get into the fleet more in a little bit, so I'll save that. But, um, but yeah. So it, it, the, the there's this huge there's this huge TAM, and you know I, it's it's it, you know it's less it's much less penetrated than comparable countries and geographically there's not really a reason it should be. And Volaris is the one, since 2005, who's doubled the size already. And I don't see any reason, it doesn't look like they're slowing down. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so it's really it's a really exciting situation. I mean, obviously it's very different than many other places in the world. Um, so you know, when people gag at an airline, because they think they're all flying on top of each other, that's one big reason it's different. And then the other one is, there's a giant hole in the market and it was an irrational competitor. So you have a structural change, a structural competitive change. And yeah, the stock is being priced. You know, I think COVID has had a lot of companies where it's a one time, you know, one time thing happens and it gets projected and capitalized as if it's gonna happen forever. And other ones that have, you know, a real structural change that gets capitalized as if it's one time. And I think that's what's happening with Valaris. And I think when we dig into it, you'll see it's actually It's not one time. There's a structural reason for this. It started before the pandemic because Interjet came out, and uh, yeah, it's really exciting. So, I'll I'll let you kind of share me because I can ramble a bit.
0: We're going to we're going to get into valuation next, and I think this relative valuation comment about how this is being priced when you compare it to ultra low cost carrier peers is something I want to explore. I I wanted to riff quickly before we get there uh, on the on competitive capacity. So I want to go down. I want to take you down two different paths. One is the following: if if I remember my my uh, hedge fund days and I saw this kind of competitive capacity, I would instantly think that the airline, uh, you know, is going to exhibit substantial pricing power. And I think this is really important, just because we're probably uh, we're probably going to have some cost push on fuel in the next couple of years. My only fear is that ultra low cost carriers always have a way of, I don't want to say disappointing you, but they're not, they're certainly not trying to maximize ticket price often, you know, it's all about maximizing load factors and that sort of thing. And then getting ancillary. So, so let's go down that path first. And then I want to talk about competition second, but, but tell me, tell me your thoughts on, on that first line of of thought. yeah, so I think that, that if you look at the Bill Frank carriers of the
1: past, you know, they overgrow and they, they price very aggressively. But if you look post-crisis, like post-911 or post-08, or post, uh, or post um, 08, you actually had a sustained period. Let me pull it up for Spear because this is when it was a multibagger. But um, I have this here. So... So in 05, so from O nine to 2015, uh, Spirit grew 33% uh, you know, total ASMs, or uh, sorry, annualized ASMs, and also grew RASM, and Chasm went down, uh, annualized 1.2%. So they had a RASM minus Chasm compounding at 3.8%. percent O five to 05, so that's 09 to 15, 05 to 15, they grew 14%, uh, RASM grew one7 and costs down. So there are periods where, where they're underpenetrated and where the, the, the the competition is challenged. And so they gain all that share. And then once there's a a supply shock, suddenly the price accrues to them. Um, And, and that's kind of been the case with a lot of them. So, well, it's kind of two things. One is if you take too much price, you're going to one draw competition and two, maybe draw regulatory um, frustration or, or, or scrutiny. And, What's the more important side of the story is the chasm because I don't think Volaris wants to take much price, especially from where they are right now. But the best thing they could do would be to remove, you know, two or three points of chasm every year. And I think I'll tell you why I think I can do that or, you know, probably two points a year, just given the environment right now, but they can take two points of chasm every year, give one of that to the passenger or even two of it to the passenger and then just get operating leverage on that. And then, you know, on a cash flow basis, on a, on a growth basis, on a, on a long-term basis, you know, that's how you protect your share, grow the business, but you can't give more, right? You, you can't you can't have flat chasm and, and give them a 20 price like the U.S. guys do. Um, but, look, I, I people, this is a little a bit of a philosophy difference with me, but, like, I think that most of the, you know, people talk about airlines doing, you know, all this ultra aggressive, you know, self-destructive stuff. And they do do it sometimes for sure. Um, especially two of the legacies I know of, but, but I think the the, the, the irrationality is really a function of that, of that prisoner dilemma. It's a function of the competitive capacity. It's a function of the network. People look at something like Hawaiian airlines, uh, when it was, you know, it was, uh, they had two carriers that kind of split Ender Island flying and, and to the U S and abroad, Aloha and Hawaiian. And then a low cost guy came in you know, started, you know, a bull in a China shop with $30 fares and they all quickly went to like 10, $15 fares and they all went bankrupt. Right? Like nothing changed with the, the, you know, the, the intelligence of the management teams. Like when someone comes in with a lower cost, they set the price. Right. And if their goal is to take share, you know, well, you know, your, your best, your best option is to try to grow out of your price and try to stomp them out. So for example, you know, if I am a legacy and Spirit is only 3% of my network and my overlap with them is 25% of their network, you know, they come into my hub charging $50 a seat. Well, you know, I might have to match that $50 a seat because even though I'm gonna lose 150 a seat or 100 a seat on that flight, them getting to 10% of my airport totally destroys my network. Because they take all the trunk routes, and the trunk routes support the thin routes. It's so getting a little more into it, but basically, I think that people mistake a geographic or a or a footprint or a cost advantage f- for discipline. But you can only be disciplined when you're the cost when you have the cost advantage. And right. um, and you're right. There, there have been many cases in the U.S. where people have the cost advantage and have not been disciplined, but. that's in my view a function of you know of of federal intervention to not allow i mean right right they're subsidizing
0: all these carriers to buy more planes so naturally that 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 makes total sense and the the second route i want to go down is just you know um i've studied the airlines a lot you know Particularly in the U.S., the only time you make money is on monopoly routes. You, you do well on duopolies, but you crush it on monopolies. So if Valeris goes from 10 to 31 because of a bankruptcy, they're most likely going to print cash. Uh, I'm not saying this means you can't buy the stock, but I'd be skeptical that that 31 is around for more than a year or two. Um, so I, I want to hear, you know, I think Allegiant just made a minority investment in Viva. Where's the capital going to come from to bring that 31 down? And what's going to be the slope, uh, you know, of, of new competition on these monopoly routes, because I have to think they're just printing money right now on monopoly. Routes. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're,
1: they're doing a 40% EBITDA margin and they've grown 50% versus pre COVID. So we didn't, you probably should open with that. Like this is an air carrier that you know, generated, I think like 25% of their market cap and free cash flow. And there's a, there's a component of the timing of leases that make it look a little better, but like they are absolutely, I mean, these margins, you know, what they did in 2020 is, is, is if they kept doing that, that would probably draw some regulatory scrutiny or a new entrant. But the other thing is it's their, it's their scale, their size, right? So if you look at, if you look at uh, Brazil, you know, they got down to four, then went to three and for of, you know, several, several years, they did structurally 10 points higher margin than the U S guys growing faster now, naturally, now they have the, the RAIs, so it's a nightmare anyway in all the whole politics. But, but if you look at Canada, right, where it's like a two- or three-player market, if, if, if the carriers have their niche and they stick to their niche, it can sustain. Um, and the thing is, you'd have to have somebody be a lower cost than Volaris, right? So you'd have to have somebody who has a higher mix of denser, newer, lower-cost lease, lower, lower chasm aircraft, and they'd have to come in. You know, if somebody tried to start a ten-plane carrier, and Volaris is now a hundred planes, they has got their hundredth plane, right? Like again, if we talked about with you know, you're three percent of my network, I'm I'm fifty percent of yours, right? I can just sit on you, <laughs> right? And I can I can price match until you go away, um, right? And you're, uh, that that's that's what the legacies did to Norwegian Trans Pacific, and and it's. It's a very complex pricing system they do, but that's that's yeah it, it's uh so i mean if there's a new entrant it's a matter of yeah who you know when, when you can buy this for like three and a half times EBITDA, why would you start a new carrier right and are you going to be able to get the same kind of deal that indigo has and you know, the same kind of airport deals like are you are you gonna have i mean there's such an important piece of the airports now that it's important, so it's it's you know there will be some competition in the in Mexico City because they're all there and but it's, it's slot constrained and and in the, the you know that's 16 percent of Velars' network and it was like you know even lower before that's opportunistic um, transborder um, I mean Southwest tried to go to Mexico City and in 2019 they quit they're like we can't do it like we're not competitive you know that's the low-cost care yeah not the lowest cost care in the US but it's you know the most palatable low-cost care in the US and they, they don't bail out of airports and and they did they're, they can't compete so it's like yeah, you know, there there have been also two new developments with code shares. I don't know if that's a route want to go down, but but code shares are sort of like a, a merger for a piece of the network. And so you have Frontier uh, and uh, Viva, or sorry, Frontier and and uh, Volaris, both Indigo airlines. And then you have just recently Allegiant announced one with Viva, and I think this is really important. So one when you can connect, when you can, so suddenly they can make connections, right? Uh, somebody going from Mexico or from the U.S. can connect to all the cities that Allegiant flies to and all the cities that Viva flies to or all the cities that the Frontier and, and uh, Volaris fly to. So they can start making connections. So basically any leisure market. You'll essentially get to any leisure market in the yeah, U.S. Yeah, and also, also, you know, you have people, you have people buying a Allegiant ticket because they're, or so a Frontier ticket because they're used to it, right? And they'll get that Frontier price and it'll be at, at a, at a Volaris, you know, chasm in some, in some cases, right. And this is a split of the profit, but not only does that mean, you know, the two lowest cost carriers in the U S are, are, you know, have basically a cross border merger with the two lowest cost carriers in Mexico, but also Allegiant put out a deck where they've said, you know, here are all the potential markets we're looking at it very clearly had very, very little overlap. Like, I mean, it, it it had to be it had not not a message, but uh, I mean it was it was very clear that the intention is to go to airports where Valaris is not, and take those passengers from from the high cost U.S. carriers. Um, so I, I I actually think that there are other concerns uh, that probably step ahead of or other risks that step ahead of of competition because right now, you know, Aeromexico is not is not able. I mean, you know. Their resins, you know, their chasm is higher than than Volaris rasm, So, they're just this is a different passenger, and you know, they tried to compete, and they just can't. That's why they shrunk. That's why they've shrunk, and and now you know, LCC has become sixty percent of the market or more in fifteen years, and and the U.S. guys can't compete because they have higher costs in a bunch of different ways, and um, and you know, and so you just have to you just have to believe that that Viva and Volaris can see it, can find enough growth in their own, you know, their own customer and, and geographic segments that, that there's no reason to, right? And that's that bus switching. Is is that there's just such a runway for growth. And we have we have the fleet plans for both. They they don't imply an acceleration of the growth. They imply a slightly lower growth rate. Those are flexible. Maybe somebody will falter. But you know I think you know Viva's put out press releases. I think they're expected to IPO so they have no reason to start a price for right now, right? They want an IPO at a good valuation. And I also think that'll bring some attention to, to Valaris. So you, know, you have both management teams, when they talk about where the growth comes from, first it comes from this bus switching, then it comes from up planes on their existing routes and, and, and reducing the costs rather than you know, reducing the costs and then you know, offering a few more seats. And then also it comes from the Central America you know, central america doesn't have any lccs and bill frank has started some other lccs and i think he's expected to start some more and i expect one day they'll all connect across south america just like frontier and volaris did um but that's that's maybe down the line something to think about but i don't want to go off on tangent, so i'll let you steer me choice let's
0: let's go let's frame the investment opportunity i want to i want to hear you know how you think about the valuation both on an absolute and relative perspective uh, and then you know where where your numbers versus consensus and assuming that, assuming that that you're above the street I'd love to hear what the drivers are and then turn that all into a price target
1: yeah absolutely let me just pull it up one second here
0: we go so I'm at so
1: my low, my, my base case of 2023 is uh, a little over uh, 20.6 billion uh, pesos of EBITDA. And that primarily comes from two very identifiable sources. Um, one is the street is modeling the number of ASMs that float out of the fleet plan incorrectly. Um, so you know, they have four types of planes, A320s, A321s, A320 NEOs, A321 NEOs, and then they have A319s. And each of these has a different number of seats they typically go a different distance, stage length. They have different utilizations, and so we actually go down to what's actually scheduled and what routes does a plan to go to. And you know, I go into some of the cell side models, and you know, they just say how many total planes and what's their typical ASM per plane. Like, well, if you're adding 25 seats onto a plane, um, then that's gonna, the number of ASMs per plane is going to change, right? Even if it's find the same miles, the same number of times, going to have more seats, and so they're really not capturing that basically the free seats, they're covering all the costs, not the free seats. So I have uh, Verse first street for, so through 23 versus 19, I have twenty-eight uh, percent total growth in aircraft, 34% in total, you know, seats times aircraft. That's not, so, and so we're going from 86, 186 seats per plane at the end of 20 to 195 by 24. So you're adding another nine seats per plane, so another five points of growth with you know ba- very, very low incremental costs. Um, and that gets me to, uh, they'll be at, they'll have gone from 37% in fiscal, the 30% uh, Neo, which is the 16. So the Neo's are the new engine option. They basically save about 16 points on fuel and a similar, uh, a roughly similar percentage overall on Chasm. Um, but they also cost a little more, right? And uh, So they've gone from 30% on these dense, lower cost, higher density planes, and they've gone to exiting the year about 47, and then 57 next year, 71, 78. So they're going to more than double the percentage of their uh, traffic that's traveling on you know the 16% less fuel burn, and also you know the fixed cost like like per per aircraft landings. You know the pilot. You know you don't need more pilots. You do need a couple. You might need more flight attendants. One more flight attendant, but Basically, they're going to get a bunch of fixed cost leverage within the plane uh, from these additional seats. And so not only is the capacity from those seats incorrectly modeled by about three points annually, uh, but um, all of the costs of those planes are in there, and, and they're not the fuel burn. And the fuel burn is is very, very modelable. There are many countries that give you the degree of detail. You know how much an A320neo with that particular number of seats and engines you know, burns on a thousand mile trip. Uh, it, it's very easy. You know, that's very verifiable that that plane burns less fuel, and so that's what I like. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty around fuel price and flexibility in the fleet. You know, there's the peso, and just but you but you have you're starting off with you know you know five points of margin to work with for contingencies, just from incorrect modeling, just you know, just from that, and then you also have some upside potentially in the bear, in the bull case from from again that that even at a similar you know, if if these airlines collectively are growing you know low teens for a couple of years is what they've they've guided to but that's you know 50% you know it was 50% right off the bat and I want to talk about that in a minute but um, you know all that growth is just backfill and they're going to be growing you know roughly in line with you know what historical demand would have been their costs are gonna go down a lot. So maybe the ticket price will be flat or downish, but margins will expand and versus pre-COVID, not probably not versus 2020, which they got to 40 points. Uh they'll probably I think they'll settle some I think somewhere around you know 35 plus a little bit. But basically, the big question now is they blew out Rasm in 2020 or in 2021. Um, and they have these great margins, and the street is modeling as if those are going back down because that's what you do in airlines. When they grow too fast, you put them, you pull their margins down because they're going to be competitive, but they're right. not modeling in one, all the cost savings. And two, the less of a need to be irrationally competitive. So you have a step up in price, a structural ongoing cost advantage that is widening. Um, and that's you know, the, that, that's the note, right? Is nobody can just grab, you know, Air Mexico cannot suddenly become 100% A321 carrier. Uh, it just doesn't work that way, right? So that just, you know. So let's see, consensus. This may be, this may be well, uh, I don't think this is stale, but it's a couple weeks old. So consensus is 18.5. I'm at 20.6 in calendar 23. I think it's conservative. My high is 23.5. My low is 13 because it can be dangerous, uh, you know, I mean, in, in a bad scenario. But then also... The street is modeling the debt wrong. There's this change in IFRS, and so you know some of the street is trying to, you know, after after all these quarters, like still back into what the pre-IFRS like comparable was, and not doing it like on a you know they, they, you can tell how much they pay on the leases and the cash flow. But so you know they have like cat they have like debt going up or down. But if they're doing 35% margins, I don't know I don't know why you know, they think they can get to like a two and a half. Uh, or you know a little higher, uh, EV to EBITDA, which is great for airlines. Their net cash ex leases, so, so that's how I get to that higher. I, I, can, I can we can dig more into the how much of that comes from ASMs and how much of that comes from Chasm. but I, but um. No, I think I I, I think that's that's. Super I think the multiple helpful. is. Just super, I just want to talk super. about multiple also because. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean. I don't want to take so I've tweeted that little comparison. Can uh, You guys
0: see that? Yeah, it's it's, it's this, you're talking about the, the line chart versus the other. Yeah, uh, so versus so, the other, they have, uh, a, so
1: basically, you know, Latin American carriers have traded like six to seven, and that's mostly because the Brazilian ones, you know, even though there's kind of a higher risk premium, they're they're consolidated, they're really good operators. There's a lot of growth there too, um, and then globally. You know, high quality, low cost carriers like like uh, Ryanair. Well, Allegiant was lo- was a uh, Allegiant was a high quality, ultra low cost carrier a couple weeks ago, but last week they stopped being that. I'm, I'm kidding <laughs> but uh, they, they bought they bought a mixed fleet. But it's an airline joke. Um, but yeah, Ryanair, Wizz, right? These guys are getting six to eight, or uh, or even you know a mid teens PE, and I have you know, dollars somewhere around four on like. on on my 23. So it's, you know, if you, even I take the low end of that, right. And just call it like a six or seven. You know, this is a higher quality. It's high quality as any. It's high quality as Wiz. It's high quality as Azul. It's high quality as, you know, Air Canada. Well, it's all pre-crisis because things have changed for some of them. But, um, you know, they have more growth in front of them, higher margins, and, and arguably an advantage structure compared to, you know, Ryanair. Um, And they have a much more consolidated market. Uh, and and I don't think there's any reason they should trade at a two-turn discount. Also, you know this is on consensus. The U.S. guys' consensus is absolutely bonkers, and it's going to be probably zero. But so yeah, you have I think I think that there's a lot of upside to estimates here. The multiple is like two standard deviations more discounted than it's ever been to versus itself and versus its peers. And the peers' estimates are probably two or three times too high, or more.
0: It, it what's the so. What would be the mean versus itself six or seven times? I uh, have that. Let me just pull it up one sec.
1: It's a little bit messy because of the change in IFRS for what is what the dollar is, right. um, and that that causes some confusion. But. So five year, and also again, when they IPO'd right, they were uh, pretty volatile, low, you know, when a more competitive market, but let me see, it's loading very slowly. Uh, So they, they, for self, they've traded between eight and five, but on a, it's better to look at a two year basis because their lines are so choppy, but. on on an ntm basis they traded you know an average of seven or 6.8 over the five years and and their situation those five years was was dramatically worse um and so you have you know a step up in growth step up in market share a step up in monopoly routes a step down in costs an acceleration of the cost savings expanding moat a dominant position new avenues of growth with central america an advantage plane order and it's trading at you know a 50 percent discount to its historical, and 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 to its peer group, um, and it and I can tell you what how that came to be, but um, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So we have it. We have a base yeah, case think- basically. Base case. I have uh, you know in tw- so at the end of 22, dying on 23 is 20.6 billion of EBITDA at a seven times multiple. You should do 144 billion pesos of Uh, enterprise value net debt 38.2 uh so about a little over a billion dollar market cap 90 pesos a share and that's a double and i think it's entirely feasible on on not super aggressive estimates i'm assuming that you know price comes down to somewhere between uh where it was in 2021 and where it was before and uh margins come down somewhere between that and and that but the but um but they you know they're going to be bigger than the market thinks you know you know two or three points more capacity and and uh, and I don't know why the consensus debt is what it is it's just wrong and then one other thing it's just interesting to note versus its latin american peers is uh, azul and uh gol use like a mid or high teens i forget someone correct me if you know uh, discount rate to calculate their lease right so you have the NPV of the lease payments and they use like a 16 point discount rate where Velars is at 5 so their debt compared okay. to peers is also dramatically overstated Interesting. So And then the high, the so, high case is a, yeah. is a, is a, a triple the low case at 13.5, six times debt goes up from here at 45, even though they're doing sale lease back. So it shouldn't, but uh, so that gets me to like a 30% downside. Uh, this is a little stale actually. So you might, it's come up a little bit since I wrote this in, in mid November, but uh, so maybe it's 75% up, you know, in bit in the base, uh, thirty-five you percent know, down in the low, and then a little less than a double in the high. I can I can follow up with uh, an updated, refreshed one, but I just don't. Bloomberg's not refreshing, so.
0: So basically, just to restate your argument, so the probably the best position ultra low cost carrier in the world right now, um, if we're calling a spade a spade, gets back to a median valuation and is up eighty to ninety percent in a year. And your outlook from there is a decade of high single digit capacity growth. Uh, yeah, I think a decade of ever- 10
1: point capacity growth, but maybe, you know, minus one or two point RASM because that's what they do. They make they make tickets cheaper so more people can fly. Um, and they, and they, they do that by, you know, reducing their cost. and, and, and you know, experts in the world. So you should have flattish margins at, you know, top line growth of you know, high single digit because, you know, maybe a little more capacity a little lower RASM, but they had the ability to do that because of the monopoly routes, because of the bus switching, and because of the underpenetration of the Mexican market, and because of the, the rationality of the Mexican market. Um, and then they'll just go recreate the model in, uh, in Latin America, which they were in Central America, which they started doing. So they have, they're at 100 points, they just got their 100th. They were at like 50, you know, three or four years ago. Uh, they have 98 more coming through 2030, and they'll have, you know, they'll have some returns, right, if demand is stronger. Then they'll keep the you know they'll, they'll extend leases if demand is weaker then they can they can return leases. There's flexibility here to manage to capacity, and the reason the multiple is here is because one, the street is not dug into the structural change of the story. Um, two, uh, I just don't know. I think the I think the analysts that cover the name are great on other names, but I think they're just not some of. Uh, Some of the the guys who picked it up recently, initiated recently, actually tell the case pretty well. But they still... um, I still think they're just too low on numbers. And, and, you know, they're valuing these U.S. guys at 5 times 2024, you know, some dream number in 2024. And they're valuing Volaris at, like, 5.5 times 22, when, like, it's basically on the books. Like, people freak out that, you know, next quarter is 53% year-over-year growth. Like, that makes an airline guy gag. But, like, there are times when, you know... United, I think in like 2016, when Scott Curry came in 2015, when, I forget exactly when, he came in and he put, you know, a couple points too high of growth and people freaked out. But he explained, you know, how it was going to, why it was going to work with the way they were changing their bank structure and their hubs. And it was some intricacies of airline stuff, but not that complicated. And if you understood that not all capacity is created equal, you know, that actually ended up to work. And so, um, you know, there are these situations. And so the right thing to do for this management team was to go fill this hole and and they filled it and yes next quarter is fifty percent year-over-year capacity growth but sequentially it's three percent right we're at a hundred planes exiting the year we'll be at a hundred we we'll thirteen planes exiting next year um, and I think I'll follow up with this, this crazy chart um, but Mexican domestic ASMs are just about recovered but the number of flights in Mexico and flight hours and flight, just all the cost associated pieces of it are still down like 10%. And that's because the share gains from these low cost, high density, lower price players. Um, And so, you know, you say, Oh, but you're, you know, the market's already fully recovered. How are they going to get another 10% out of it? Well, one, you know, they're at 40% margins right now. Like that's, they don't, they don't want to be there, right? You want to be in the mid thirties would be nice and growing faster. But two,
0: is, um, uh, well, I forgot to. It. Let's come back to that. So, so I step way back, and this will be my last comment, and then I want uh, some of the other guys to ask a couple questions. Um, I step way back and I say, how this just doesn't make sense. It's not as if there's no example of, you know, you think of the Ryanair story, you think of the Wiz story. Think of the fact that Bill Frank is probably a billionaire. Um, there's been a ton of money made around the world on this business model, and it, and by the way, with much worse setups. I mean, Ryanair was, was uh, Ryanair was you know operating in a in a in a terrible air, uh, a, a terrible market for for airlines. Although some people would say they are a skimmer, so it doesn't matter. But it's not as if there's no example of the ultra low cost carrier model uh not working right and yet this one's sitting out here after their market has gone from bad to real their market structure has gone from bad to really good and the stock's just sitting here it's just it's almost a, a head scratcher and yeah. it's still here
1: yeah one one like it's
0: still quite underfollowed. i mean when we
1: you know when i was looking at this and you know when i was covering it most of the other most of the other teams the did Airlines, the place I was at, didn't didn't cover it because they just couldn't have a large enough position and they just did other things, right? So I think I was the only person there who even covered it due to you know, Dead Airlines. Uh, they just cover Azul maybe or Azul and Gol or Azul, Gol, and Copa. Um, two, uh, you know, it's been illiquid, right? And so like even, you know, right post-pandemic or even before, like I couldn't, you know, I loved it. I saw it, I know it should, I, I, I was very confident that it should be you know, a multi-bagger, but like, and, and from that point was like, I couldn't buy, we could traded three million a day. And so, you know, at the, at the trough of the pandemic, they did a, a small primary and Indigo put Indigo, you know, invested in it and it got a little more liquid and it's gotten a lot bigger. Um, and so it's getting some eyeballs on it. It's getting more us sell side coverage. Um, and, and most of the people that I came in touch with in airlines that cover it, it's their favorite stock. It's only a handful of people. And when I, when I pitch it to uh, you know peers uh, you know single manager peers, they tend to uh, really like the idea of it, but just I've heard several times that they, they don't, that they don't think that they have the uh, ability to evaluate an airline like' because it's, it's, the, the way we do it's very data intensive, but that's not for these long-term structural changes that's for like you know short- term resin business is like you don't need that for this. It's, a, you know, the Mexican government puts out all you need. Um, and, and, you know, Viva reports. Viva has reported their financials and monthly traffic, which is really great. And so does Air Mexico, even through bankruptcy. So you have all the players, um, and Interjet did, before they were defunct. So you have the whole market. It's four carriers. It's, uh, it's worth the work, I think. But, but it, yeah, it's just, you know, airlines are totally off the table for a, a large majority of the investment community, reasonably so. I think one of my favorite couple of funny quotes: uh, uh, David Neilman, who founded JetBlue and just uh, and founded Azul and Morris Air, and he just started a new airline. Uh, he said right after raising for JetBlue, uh, people invest in aviation are the biggest suckers in the world. Uh, the founder of EasyJet once said in an article, um, "This industry attracts much more capital than it deserves." Like it's a it's a it's a it, there's big structural challenges in the industry, and I will say like uh we i still feel much more comfortable having this paired against you know an absolute short which there are plenty um because you do you are subject to fuel you are subject to COVID headlines like i think you have to have like, the situ the scenario in which it's worse than my downside case like all their competitors will be poof and then that, right. that it's better for them anyway that's what just happened right like the worst case scenario is, is actually good for the best, for the you know, for the lowest cost carrier. Um, I could talk more other than the other risk would be if the regulatory situation changed, which, um, you know, it's a, it's a Latin American country and it's, it's consolidating, right. If there were, if, if, if politics got involved or if, if there were, uh, you know, anything like that, that would be, um, you know, that's, that's something you have to underwrite too. And I, and I'm not sure I'm special to be able to judge that, but, uh, I'd rather have that in Mexico and the peso than that in Brazil
0: and the real. Right, right. So Adavia or Larry, uh, any questions? Thank you for being so patient.
2: Yeah, I'd love to jump in here. Thanks so much, guys, for, for hosting this call. Um, also a big fan of the stock. Uh, quick question on pricing. Uh, you know, I'm looking at the, at the numbers, and it looks like ancillary revenue per passenger I think is up like 50%. Um, over 2019. Level. Oh, we didn't talk about that.
1: That's an important point.
2: Yeah, yeah. Just curious to, to understand a little bit better the components of that, whether you think anything embedded within that is more one time as opposed to kind of moving forward, you know, those numbers being like that. So just curious to hear your thoughts on ancillary revenue.
1: Yeah, so actually, I haven't found any of the cells that breaks this out, but they do in their 20F. Um, uh, domestic versus international. Um, they're pretty similar uh, percent you know I think what are they roughly 35% ancillaries, whereas like some of the U.S. guys are approaching 50%. So ancillaries are, you know, what's not the base fare, bringing a bag on, seat selection, cancellation, stuff they nickel and dime you for, which I don't think they do as bad as the, as bad as some of the other ones. But um, but that's you know that's to advertise at low ticket price for people who just want the seat. Um, and so you know there's there's arguments on both sides that that's uh, that, oh this is predatory or uh, no, it's it's good because it enables you know someone who just wants a seat to pay very little and just have a seat and let's go fly. You can't. I I actually subscribe to the former camp or to the latter camp, but understand the former. But um, so if you look at you can actually back into the amount of bags. So there's a few components. Cargo is probably running a little hot, um, and then there's there's bag fees uh, and carry on bag fees are a small portion of that, and that is. Uh, so they're in a little fight right now with uh, the with the regulator on um, on charging for those, and, and they basically just said whatever because you know someone for the most part will just come back and take a price, and, and they you know, basically said it has uh, or, you know something like it will. I mean, but um, but but most of that is you know checked bags and carry on bags, and and so I think if you I think if you look at the attached rate of bags, it has. You know, we can see that through November, and it's it you know it peaked during COVID, probably when people were doing like long um, long quarantines or something. But it's remained steadily higher. They also they have launched a subscription service, which is part of that, and they got like thirty million people, thirty thousand people to sign up so far. Um, they do some buy now pay later, uh, and also they're doing dynamic pricing on that. And so they think they can grow that. I think they said, I I, I don't want to put words in their mouth. So I don't remember the exact number, but I think it was. Like it's either one or two points or one or two pesos a year uh, you know, to get somewhere closer but not all the way to, to kind of the percentage of revenue the U.S. guys have it. Um, and I, it seems entirely feasible to me because they have consistently ex- – you know, they've, they've over-executed on that all the time. And I think the, you know, they put a lot right before the crisis into dynamic pricing, which means you know, same thing they do with the tickets, right? Uh, depending on what time of day or where you're flying, if it's a round trip or your customer profile – you get, you know, if you're a corporate or, or, well, they don't have much corporate, but, you know, the pricing, they can algorithmically change it as it gets closer to the flight. You know, they can play around with it to, to maximize, you know, to, 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 to maximize the price they're getting, you know, in different scenarios. And they think that's worth, you know, a point or two a year or maybe a case or two a year. We need to check that. But um, I have it coming down from 21. Uh, but not not substantially down from where it is now. I'd give it a little hit. I just assume that uh, carry on bags for the domestic portion uh, you know just goes maybe half in a ticket in a way, but that's like gets me like sixty basis points uh, it's not not a big not a big deal. Um, so yeah, the cargo is I can give you a percentage one sec. So all in, yeah, cargo's less than five percent. It looks like uh, you know, immaterial international for that for that portion of it, and cargo is, uh, yeah, it's basically immaterial. I mean, it's it grew a little bit thing, but it's it's mm-hmm. in twenty twenty, it was one ninety six million over uh, eight point five billion for fares. And seven billion for for ancillaries, and um, and then other uh, is is some of those membership things. So, uh, I mean, they're growing the offerings, they're growing the efficiency of those offerings. They're way way below the ceiling that other LCCs around the world have have found, you know, to, to be optimal to get people the lowest price. So, uh, they have a slide in their deck where they compare it. It says it better than I, off the top of my head, have that breakdown, but. It's a good point. It's another source of uh, I have, I have basically, you know, some, some rather, they'll dilute the ticket price and they'll get more ancillaries. And what that gives you, that means you can fill the plane the maximum load factor, right? And then you get it back in ancillaries. So you can, so if there is, you know, if there is any weakness, you can discount and get it back and you can, and, and yeah, it's 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 more stable, right? Cause, um, yeah, it's, it's slightly more stable um, than ticket pricing, and that's generally been good on, to the downside and downside scenario.
2: Got it. Yeah, that's helpful. And, and I've, I feel like I've heard the term insurance combos turn around a little bit, too, on earnings calls. Do you have any insight into that, what exactly that means, and if that's say, sort of... You, can you say the term again? Uh, insurance combos. I think they use that. that oh, word. like trip insurance? Like, yeah, like I'm your, not sure specifically like what the components of that insurance was, but... Wondering if that had you know, sort of a one-time boost from COVID as well and whether that might dissipate. Uh,
1: I don't know, but I would guess the thing I would be more concerned about the one-time boost would be would be the big bags from longer stays or maybe seat selection, people wanting to sit further away. But I, I, I need to probably drill down to that more. But the big piece of it is bags, and there's good data on that, it's, it's public. And we can see that that's, you know, it's been on a structural uptrend, it spiked in 2Q. It came down a little into 3Q. And as of November, it's basically flat. So, it, it you know, I, I write it down some. And you can call that price. You can call it the attach rate going down. But, uh, you know, it's been, it's basically been a pretty steady nine pounds of bags per passenger, you know, excluding that spike. And the price is remaining up. So, I think they're just getting price on it. That. I, I, that's, that's something I should dig into more, though. Because I don't know if trip insurance... Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think that would be a big portion of it, but uh, I can see why people, I can see why people, they didn't, they never did many cancellations because they don't have the same labor issues the U.S. has. Uh, but I can see if there's lockdowns, why uh, people get trip insurance. So, yeah, that's a good question. Matt. I don't know how to answer for you. Though.
0: Got it. Thanks. So I think, I think you've laid out the case really well. Um... And, you know, I think that's a pretty decent place to wrap it up. But I do I do want you to end on one note, which is just, you know, we fast forward by a year. Mexican GDP is fine. How do we go wrong? What, what goes wrong in a year? Uh, so, sorry, if we fast forward a year uh, and the stock doesn't perform. Uh, and obviously I want to throw out. Matt, Matt, obviously macro could always go wrong and it impacts airlines. But let's assume that doesn't happen. What you know? What what would it be that causes issues here? I think, I think the, I think the scariest thing would be,
1: um, you know, if there were, if it stopped being a laissez-faire market. I don't think there's any signs of that, but it's that's that's the thing where, you know, that that would be concerning for the thesis. And if there were aggressive discounting, if that changed, that would that would be that you know that would be meaningful for the thesis, right? If if you saw Viva. Take up their their order and their implied growth like double for the next five years,
0: then it's a different story,
1: right? I, I think it would be crazy for them to do that. I think they, they're smart and they probably know that too. But um, if you saw you know if you saw a change in the rationality of the market, either by competitors or you know via via force of any kind, that that would yeah that's how that's how this that that would that would be what would concern me ex macro. Um, and I'm not really I'm not really concerned about either of them and I. Done a lot valuing them, but I think you know, we, we know the three players. Uh, it's you know the, the they're aligned to provide more capacity to more people in Mexico, and they don't have to step on each other to do it. And I don't think it's anti-competitive because pricing is going down every year; and more people get to fly, so it's hardly the definition of that. Um, and and you know both companies have good relationships uh, with 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 the government, so um, I don't see any reason why that would be the case. And then, you know, again, at least the IBO really provides in my Viva IBO and my, I mean, unless there was a big demand shock um, and they just were stuck with far too many planes and they didn't have flexible fleet plan, which I don't know what flexible fleet plan is. I I have no idea. Not that I'm saying it's not, but I mean, in a normal macro scenario, I just, I I think, yeah, I guess I, I think anything political or regulatory that interfered with, you know, uh, a, a better more rational situation would be would be con- the non-macro thing that i that would concern me okay great well thank you thank you for, and then i'll for... We'll say look that there is some fuel price where it may eventually be better for them but it's not for a while right like i mean that's we we have a, a house view of, of much higher fuel and we're happy in this name right but, right you know, there's a limit to everything right yeah, I appreciate you balancing every the, one thing. Every every uh, every four points of peso change is one point of margin. Uh, I believe they said. Uh,
0: okay, so okay.
1: peso is not peso is not as, as, as that as meaningful as fuel really. But you know, you get the translation to the ADR. So uh, so yeah, macro. I mean, really, the thing that's most likely to help to the, the thing that's most likely to depress the upside case would be on support of macro, right? The thing is. And that's the thing that's also gonna hurt the downside case, really. But the other thing, the next thing, I guess, will be regulatory, but it's it's a far second to me. Okay. And I just I think it's priced for I think I think it's priced for all of those risks and and much, much more.
0: Well I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean I wanted to I, I love I love the idea. I wanted to at least uh, spend, spend a few seconds on what could go wrong. But um, look, we're really fortunate to have you, you know, this name inside and out uh, and it really shines through in this conversation. So I really appreciate your time. Uh, I, you know, everybody, if you don't follow it's at cross C um, and you know, we'll be, we'll, we'll keep in touch on this name. I, I, I think it's a really compelling story that you could actually hold for a while Uh, As opposed to just for a trade, and so so it's definitely one that that I'm certainly watching and really appreciate all your thoughts.
1: Awesome, yeah. I mean, it's 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 uh it's it's my favorite position, and it's uh we we love it and we're pretty pretty confident. And I mean, also you know, on a relative basis versus the U.S. guys, in my view, it's it's just there's not been a dislocation like this, and
2: and it's a once in a cycle thing. Even if it's already
1: ripped, I think that's one thing. Is the chart scares people? because it doesn't look like airlines should look like that. But uh, that's what operating leverage does, right?
0: Right, absolutely. All right, check. much appreciated.
1: Yeah, guys, so, uh, yeah, if anybody does work on it, uh, just feel free to, to DM me, and I will try to uh, post some exhibits uh, that I probably should have had beforehand, but uh, they can maybe give you guys uh, a little more detail on, like, line items of my guess. But, you know, it's an airline, so line items will be off a little bit, but it's, it's more about the dynamics of, you know, whether it's inflationary and costs are up, the price is up more, or uh, you know, prices down and costs are down way more. Like, it's the physics of, of how they set up the business that really drive these things that gets you comfortable within the range of uncertainty on fuel, and they don't have labor issues. So,
0: uh,
1: yeah, that's it for me, guys. Thanks so much uh, for having me on here. It's been a really cool conversation, and anyone else, feel free to talk about it.
0: Much appreciated. Thank Thanks, everybody, for joining. Thanks, guys. Later. Okay, take care.